All right, and we are rolling once again. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass. And as always on this podcast, we are exploring faith and pursuing grace. In our previous episode, we started a debate, a debate, a real debate. Well, maybe not a real debate between 2012 Kevin and 2021 Kevin, or I guess more appropriately would be 2015 Kevin. And we didn't really know how long of an episode that would end up being, but we started realizing that it was going longer than we anticipated. And so we decided to to carve that up into two different episodes. So today we are going to be continuing that discussion. Now, as a recap, so because it's been a little bit of time maybe since you heard the last episode, um, 2012 Kevin begins his discourse in speaking to musical instruments and how they are not authorized to be used in New Testament worship by establishing authority. That's the first step that everyone within the churches of Christ makes who operates within that rule-based or law-based paradigm, and that is authority must be established. We must establish biblical authority for every practice. Authority. For authority. authority for every, authority. You listen to authority. authority. Um, we have to establish authority for everything that we do, for every practice. And so to that end, in 2012, Kevin, you started by saying that we must prove all things. Uh, the next point you made was is that we live under the new covenant, As a follow-up to that point, you said we cannot use Old Covenant practices to justify New Covenant practices. Then we, um, or rather I should say you, uh, trotted out the old command example and necessary inference chestnut. Um, And then you stated that God has always regulated the type of music that he expects to be offered up to him in worship. And that's what we really spent the majority of our time in the last episode discussing. And then you discuss the the yeah. I, the idea or the issue of a type and a shadow and how the old covenant was a type and a shadow to the new. And we spent quite a bit of time, well, not really quite a bit of time, but we we dissected and and pretty well stated what you still agree with in principle and in some ways. And then we really kind of started getting into the meat and potatoes of what you believed then and how that has changed, which is why we decided to split this up into two different episodes. We didn't want to rush through that. We wanted to take our time, and that's really where we're going to pick up tonight. Yeah, I feel like uh, the last episode we did, the majority of that, I, I would still say that I believed when I changed uh, my position on instrumental music. It's about what it's what we're about to get into. Those are the things that I really changed on that led me to the conclusion that mechanical instruments in worship, that, that they are authorized. There's nothing wrong with using mechanical instruments in worship. And that was even before I changed how I read the Bible. And, and we talked a little bit about that in the last episode, that if you were to ask me now, do I believe that mechanical instruments in worship, do I believe that that's something that's a sinful practice? Um, of course, I would tell you, no, I don't believe that. And I would answer it in a completely different way um, because I understand God differently. I understand the Bible differently. I understand worship differently. I understand how to approach the Bible in a much different way than I did even just a few years ago. And so I'm trying to do my best not to give that answer because I did change still believing in the command example and necessary inference ideology. And I believe it's important for people who are listening to this, who who probably maybe still believe in that, to know that even under that framework or within that framework, 
uh, you, I don't believe you can come to that conclusion that instrumental music and worship sinful. I believe that even within that framework, you can say, yes, even believing in command example, necessary inference, mechanical instruments, that they are something that would be authorized in new covenant worship to God. And so that's really where Absolutely. I want to keep the focus. And I'd for also like to, on discussion. another very brief side note, Kevin and I both, and I, I really think I can speak for you on this brother. And I think it's going to be a hundred percent on the mark. We both agree that using mechanical instruments in worship to God, it is not sinful in this day and time. But if someone, a church, an individual, a congregation chooses to utilize a cappella singing in their worship, it is not sinful to do that and to omit instruments either. It's, it's, in fact, it's a preference that I have. You know, in the previous episode, I had mentioned that, you know, my family was the church band essentially for the church that I grew up in. And even being a music lover, I'm a musician, I'm a drummer. I've loved music. I've listened to music my whole life. It's been an integral, huge part of my life for the entirety of my lifespan. It is still my preference to have acapella singing in worship. I strongly prefer acapella singing in worship. It's more participatory and, and I prefer it for reasons I won't get into. I was about to start, you know, going down that bunny trail, but we'll get back on track. It's, it's a preference that I personally have. I know it's a preference that very, very many people have, but where I personally now draw the line is in saying that it's absolutely a sin that will condemn your soul to a devil's hell for all eternity. If you play a guitar or a banjo or a piano in your worship service, that's just, I'm just not there anymore at all in any stretch of the imagination. But I used to believe that that was the case and you used to believe that was the case. And so we are pitting 2012 Kevin once again against 2015 Kevin and even 2021 Kevin, as we continue to go through this debate that you had. So is there any other remarks you want to make before we dive right back into it? Okay, so we left Let's off go ahead on and jump component right in. number five in the previous episode, and that's where we are going to lead off with now. So let's hear from 2012 Kevin to hear what component number five is. Two. So let's look at component number five. God has regulated only vocal music in New Covenant worship. See, when I come to the New Covenant, all I see is vocal music. All you see is vocal music in New Covenant worship. Psalm 150, verses 3 through 5, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the shadow. The Bible says, praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the lute and harp. Praise Him with a timbrel and dance. Praise Him with all these mechanical instruments. But what does the Bible say? That is a shadow. And what does Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9 say? Christ has taken that away. It's no longer there. Colossians chapter 2, it is nailed to the cross. And folks, that's a nail in a sure place. What has God established in New Covenant worship? When it comes to music, Colossians chapter three, verse 16, God has established only vocal music, but the word of Christ dwell in you richly and all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Let's move on. Second Samuel chapter six, verse five, going again to the shadow, to the old covenant, to the old uh, testament that we're no longer under. Bible says, then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, of fir wood, on harps, on all these mechanical instruments. But the Bible says that that's been taken away. And what type of music has God regulated under the new covenants? Only vocal music. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, speaking to one another. And psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart 
to the Lord. There is not a single person on earth who can open up the New Testament and show one verse that authorizes another type of music, that authorizes mechanical music in New Covenant worship. You can look, but guess what? It's not there. You cannot find something that does not exist. Now, I'm no uh, Pentecostal. But I'm going to make a prophecy tonight. Boy, you I'm going to make like a prophecy, him. and this is going to come true, that Mr. Weatherly is going to go here, there, and everywhere. He's going to run around and chase so many rabbit trails, and he's going to go everywhere, but he's not going to go to the New Testament and find one verse that authorizes mechanical is. We're going to feel like we're in Alice in Wonderland tonight, chasing so many rabbit trails. I can guarantee you that. Because Mr. Weatherly, to end this debate, listen now, all he would have to do is open up the Bible, say, Kevin, here's the New Testament passage. And guess what? I'll repent. Because that means that what he's saying is right and my proposition's wrong. But you see, that verse is not there. You cannot find something that does not exist. And you remember that. Wow. Mighty. Kevin. That was a pretty good, that was a pretty good I'm speech. I'm repenting, man. brother. I'm sorry. I have to mark you as a false teacher now. I have been convicted <laughs> of the error of my ways. I cannot in good conscience endorse instrumental music and worship any longer. Because all I have to do is go to the New Testament, open it up, and brother, it ain't there. <laughs> No, listen, listen, man, say what you will about the <laughs> oh, content mercy. of that um, debate. But brother, you have one of the things I've always been impressed with is how persuasively you can state things and just your your gift of gab that you have just to be able to speak as well as you do. I mean, it, the passion that you had then, man, it's it's forceful. It was impressive. And man, it's a it's a good case, especially whenever you operate in that paradigm, whenever you operate in that rule book paradigm, that to me is one of the strongest points and one of the strongest cases that can be made against using instrumental music and in worship is that if you go to the New Testament, you don't find it explicitly laid out as you do in the Old Testament. So if you hold to a rule book approach to the scriptures and a rule book mentality, well, that line of reasoning really makes a lot of sense. So what was it even whenever you remained enmeshed within that rule book mentality? I know we're going to kind of get into this in the next episode, whenever we talk about some of these common questions and objections and things like that. But how did that even change whenever you were still in 2015, whenever you did change your mind on this particular topic, you still remain within that rule book approach to, to Christianity and to the scriptures. So how did, how did you overcome this idea that 2012 and 2012 Kevin posited in that debate? Well, it's, it's funny you were, you were talking about that because in 2014, is when I really, 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 really started questioning this topic. And I had been researching and researching here and there. I mean, it wasn't the most important thing on my to-do list, but whenever I had free time or whenever I wanted to challenge myself a little bit more, I would always just probe a little bit. I, I would go around and check out some, some different sources on this issue because since I had that debate in 2012, 
the first few months afterwards, of course, I was patting myself on the back and everybody was telling me, oh, you just did such a great job. And I was surrounding myself with a bunch of, of yes men and women who were just telling me what a great job I did. And so I will say, and I'm going to get into this a little bit later, um, specifically in some of the early church history material where Jason Weatherly absolutely blew me to smithereens. And I don't want to get into that right now because we're going to talk about that in the next episode. Um, but thankfully, I actually did not have to respond because I might, it was the end of the debate. And so I didn't have to get back up there. And I was just thanking God for that because I was like, I don't know what I'm going to say to what he said. I had no answer. Um, but in my mind, that was something that was not enough to truly convict me, but it was enough to put a little bit of doubt in my mind thinking, okay, he brought up some stuff that I, I'm pretty convinced that I'm now wrong on, but I didn't think it actually affected the totality of my argument, but it instilled enough doubt in me to keep it in the back of my mind to think, well, hmm, what else, what else maybe am I wrong when it comes to this position? And so I would go back and I would listen to the debate and I would literally persuade myself over again when I would listen to the debate. And I, I would just I'd sometimes go over my notes again, my PowerPoint slides, and I would just go, man, there's just no way mechanical instruments can be authorized. I mean, this stuff is clear cut. <laughs> and so I would, I would go back and listen to my debate. And sometimes I would have to listen to my debate to persuade uh, me again to to believe that. And, you know, what we just what you just listened to, I mean, that was someone who was sincere. That was someone who believed what I believed with all my heart. I was passionate. I, I was approaching it from a certain uh, paradigm. It made sense. And so what made me change? Um, so 2014 is when I really just started to, to to think about this topic in a lot more depth. And a couple of things that I want to want to just bring up here is how I started changing the way that I actually viewed worship in and of itself. Because I saw as I was studying the New Testament that the New Testament doesn't act like the Old Testament. When you go to the Old Testament, there is a lot of clear-cut constitutional law. Uh, particular when you get in, particularly when you get into Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you have a lot of these specific case laws that are there. And I, I started to recognize that I was trying to read the New Testament like the Old Testament, but the New Testament didn't behave like the Old Testament. And so just to give you some examples of, of what started on what started me on a different journey were passages like John 4, 23 and 24. I always use that to say, well, hey, we're to worship in spirit and in truth. And I would just always emphasize what truth meant, which at that point, truth is what I had been taught. <laughs> truth is, is, is what uh, I thought all these rules or what worship consisted of, all these specific rules of don't do this and do this. But when I looked at the context of John 4, 23 and 24, what I, I noticed is that Jesus is saying that at one, po at one point in time, there's going to come a change, and that change is right around the corner. We're no longer are my people going to gather at a temple and have all of these specific constitutional rules to follow in worship like had previously been, but there's going to be a completely different system. We see this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18, where the temple worship and sacrificial system, which once permeated and dominated worship, was going to be fulfilled in the sacrifice 
of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he became our sacrifice and this new system was put in place. So as Christians, our lives are to be a continual living sacrifice of worship as we constantly meet together and encourage one another. Um, for example, Paul, when writing to the church in Rome, emphasized when, what a Christian's worship truly is. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So I started to realize that there was a difference in the way that we should be approaching the New Testament. It's not going to be the same way that we approach the Old Testament when it, can, when it comes to worship and constitutional law, because the New Testament was not written that way. And Jesus himself and Paul himself said that there's a change in dynamics of worship, and it wasn't going to be that same constitutional law that had permeated the Jewish system for, for thousands of years prior. Well, and dude, that's a point that I made in a conversation that I had with a really good friend of mine not too long ago. We had gotten into a discussion about their concern about how Kim and I, as I mentioned in the last um, episode or in a couple episodes ago when I recorded that um, solo episode, how Kim and I had made the decision to leave the One Cup Fellowship and and pursue a new faith community or find a new faith community to land, they had expressed their concern from a, from a place of sincere concern for us and our souls. And we had gotten into a discussion about why that's the case. You know, why did we see fit to leave? And I, I made that same point that you just made so beautifully that, you know, the new Testament does not look anything like the old Testament. And whenever you look at how everything was laid out in Israel's worship practices as it related to the tabernacle worship and the sacrificial system and things like that, you don't find that same type of constitutional law as you are fond of putting it. And as you have been fond of putting it over and over again, you don't see that manifest itself in the new, in the new Testament in the same way, the new Testament and the old Testament do not look alike in that regard. And that point that, that you made about Romans, about how we are that living sacrifice and how we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, to me, that's even more indicative of a paradigm shift that has taken place. And it is a better representation of what the Christian life is about. We didn't trade one set of rituals for another set of rituals, but that's often how the conversation is framed, or at, le at the very least, it's an implication within that conversation. Yeah, and, and we picked up uh, with a little bit of the type and shadow there where I was talking in my debate speech. And I think that, well, there he is again, um, <laughs> a little type and shadow with that. But just talking about in the the last episode how the Old Testament or the New Testament, it never talks about instrumental music being a type or shadow. I mean, you, you never see that. Ever. That, that's just something that I completely asserted. I did so with the best of intentions. That's what I was taught. And so I just basically cherry picked and stocked a few piles uh, or a few pile of verses together or a few verses in a pile together and tried to, to make it look like there's this parallel between instrumental music in the Old Testament and acapella singing in the New Testament. And that's just not the case. That doesn't exist. Uh, the way that I tried to make it look. 
And I want to just continue to to make this a point. I didn't mean to misrepresent scripture. That was just the conditioning. That was my doctrinal conditioning. That's that that was my training. And that's why presuppositions are so powerful, because when we were taught something, we're told something over and over. And for so many years, we just believe that's the truth. And I want to just quote this again. When Paul was writing to the Christians in Colossae, it was not instrumental music that Paul said was being nailed to the cross or that was nailed to the cross when Jesus died. It was the the law. It was the the fact that the condemnation of the law, we can't be justified by the law. No one could ever be justified by the law. And Jesus took that that was against us and he nailed it to the cross. And now we don't have to worry about being perfect. It's not about our righteousness. It's about Jesus' righteousness within us. In Colossians 2, 20 through 22, Paul reminded the Christians in this same context that they had freedom when it came to worship and praising God. He says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Paul's whole point within this book, within this chapter, is that Jesus nailed those the, the condemnation to the cross, that which was against us, the, the, the deadness of our sins, that, that's, that's been nailed to the cross. And so if there's anybody, whether it's a Judaizing teacher, whether it is someone who is trying to bind certain uh, elements of philosophy, philosophy or whatever it might be and say, you have to do this, Jesus plus something else. Paul says, don't listen to that because we've been freed from those things. And so don't subject yourself to these regulations. And that's exactly what I started realizing I was doing. I was still trying to subject myself to regulations, trying to read the New Testament the way that a Jew would have read the the Torah. And Paul is explicitly saying, that's not how you read the New Testament. Jesus was saying, that's not how worship works anymore. So I started at this point seeing that there is definitely a change. I didn't know how far that change would take me. I didn't know where it would lead me, but I knew that I could no longer read the New Testament as if I was reading the Torah because it was not written in the same way. In fact, the New Testament tells us that's not how we're to understand New Covenant and New Testament worship. Jesus said there's a completely different system coming, and it's not going to be one of rules and regulations. Paul says it's not going to be these these regulations that we see in the Old Testament. It's going to be a different system altogether. And so when it comes to worship, the condemnations of the traditions of men, by the way, Lee, this is interesting when I was studying this. And once again, this was back in 2014. Every single time the phrase traditions of men are used, it always has to do with binding something God has not bound every single time. In and that's incredible. That is incredibly interesting. And it's not used that many times, but every time it is used, it is not talking about someone loosing scripture. It's talking about someone taking a principle or a tradition and binding it, or even parts of the law and binding it on someone else, which is what I had been guilty of. I was the one who was taking something and binding it on someone else. Now, here's where things really start to transition. So if people are listening, I want them to listen very careful, carefully here. When it comes to worship, 
what I started seeing is that there was a lot more freedom. There's a lot more freedom than I had previously thought. So while it's certainly within the realm of freedom to not use instrumental music when worshiping God, I started to realize that there's nothing presented in the New Testament that would condemn the use of instrumental music in worship to God. And here's one of the, the passages or principles that changed my mind. Romans 4.15, Paul says, Where there's no law, there's no sin. Now, 1 John 3.4 says that sin is the transgression of law. In other words, when there is a law and we break that law, either by going too far and, and not doing what the law says, or, or adding to the law or whatever it may be, that is when we have sinned, when we have violated a law. That's pretty common sense, right? Yeah. And so that was something I always had believed in, that 1 John 3, 4, sin is a violation of law. But I had never really thought of it in Romans 4, 15 terms, that where there is no law, there is no sin. I never had thought of the reversal of that. Where there is law, there is sin. But where there is no law, there is no sin. Well, the reason why Paul is so feisty in Galatians is because certain Jews were coming in and trying to bind rules that didn't exist. And Paul says, I didn't even let it stand for an hour because they were trying to come in and spy out our freedom, try to take that freedom away. I didn't even let it last for an hour. Why? Because they were trying to bind practices where a law didn't exist. And Acts 14.24 is a clear-cut example of this, where you have these teachers coming in saying you had to be circumcised in order to be saved. So this is what Paul says in Acts 14, 24. It says, since we have heard some of you went out from us and have troubled you with words, unsettling your soul, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law to be saved, to whom we gave no such law or commandment. Now, to turn my argument that I once used in the debate on its head, I could just as easily and with just as much passion say, where is the law within the new covenant that says we must sing without instrumental music and that forbids using mechanical instruments in worship to God? Name the book, chapter, and verse that establishes the law in the new covenant that would prohibit using instrumental music, and it's simply not there. You can read it from cover to cover, and you will not find one Bible verse. The only way, the only thing that someone would have to do is show one book, chapter, and verse to establish a law that would forbid playing mechanical instruments, and it's simply not there. So we see how easy we could just take that same line of, of reasoning, but turn it on its head and say, well, where there's no law, there's no sin. And Acts 15, 24 specifically says that it's wrong when we begin to bind practices on others when there are there's no such commandment. And so where's the commandment in the New Testament, whether explicitly or implicitly, that would condemn using inter instrumental music? Well, and that argument is not an argument that I really saw a lot of power in for a long time because... My response to that, 2012 Lee would have said to 2015 Kevin or 2021 Kevin that, well, we base our practices off what the Bible says, not what the Bible doesn't say. And 
what's interesting is, is that 2012 Lee and as opposed to 2021 Lee, and I'm sure 2012 Kevin, as opposed to 2021 Kevin, the, what's so interesting is that if you were to take those two different paradigms and you take 2012 Kevin and 2021 Kevin, and you put them in a room together, much like the disciples and apostles were in that room in Acts 15 together at the Jerusalem council. And they're trying to hash all this out and figure this out. The people who are promoting circumcision, they have book, chapter, and verse to reference in regards to circumcision. They look at the covenant made with Abraham. And this is something that became apparent to me last year whenever we were studying through the book of Acts at at church in our Wednesday night studies. But whenever you look at the law and or rather the uh, the covenant given to Abraham, circumcision was a sign of that covenant. They had, you know, circumcision within the law of Moses, speaking of, you know, all male children being circumcised on the eighth day. You had the law of the circumcision of the proselyte that would come into the camp and who would become an Israelite. The people who are making the law and who are trying to bind this, they have book, chapter, and verse that they can point to to justify their perspective on circumcision. And yet you have these inspired men, inspired of the Holy Spirit as they were, saying, no, we're not binding this on them. And even, you know, Peter makes the statement, how can we bind this? And it may be in a different section. You're way better at knowing where stuff is in the scriptures than I am specifically. But Peter says, how can we bind on these people that which we neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? And so it's it's interesting that in this idea, even those within this paradigm that you and I both used to operate in, this idea of circumcision being bound on these Gentile converts, they had book, chapter, and verse to back up what they wanted to say in that paradigm. But whenever you begin to look at it in this new light as it relates to freedom in Christ and as it, and as it relates to freedom from that handwriting of ordinances that was against us, whenever you begin to look at it in those terms and you begin to consider it in light of what all of that means and how this is a law that is no longer applicable to us and where there is no law, there is no sin, it really does turn it on its head and it does become a stronger argument. Well, and, and here is where I think that most members of the churches of Christ that I once associated with would actually have agreed. And I would actually have agreed with everything I just said. And, and, and so I would have not even disagreed with myself with everything I just said. And let me explain why. I'm about to let myself do a a great job at explaining why in 2012, (laughs) because it, because I'm setting it up for that. But this is the same argument I used when I debated Johnny Elmore on the one cup is Romans 4.15, where there's no law, there's no sin. And since the, the text in the, New, in the New Testament never gives a law pertaining to how many containers we must use, then we're free to use as many containers as, as we want. And so most members of the churches of Christ would actually agree that where there's no law, there's no sin. Here is, here is the difference. They would say that there is a law in the New Testament pertaining to singing that would condemn instrumental music. And I'm about to explain what that is in a moment. But suffice to say, I don't want to lose this argument here because the point is, is that even as a hardcore legalist, uh, I still believed that there had to be a law in order to violate or in order or a law that was violated, excuse me, in order to sin. So the difference is, is that how do we establish law? 
Well, if you ask most members of the churches of Christ, or if you go to you know a preaching school and you were to ask an instructor the way that I was always taught, and, and I still predominantly believe this to this day, is that law is either given explicitly or implicitly. Well, explicitly would be do not do this or do this. That, that would be law, right? So if the Bible says do not lie, then that would be an explicit law or command telling me what not to do. That's very clear. But then there's this implicit law that can be stated, and I'm about to go over that in 2012 here in a moment, but the point is, is that everything I just said about where there's no law, there's no sin, laws of transgression law, I would have believed that and did believe that in 2012. And most people today believe that because in the absence of law, there is authority intrinsically. Uh, according to Romans 4.15 and 1 John 3.4, had God never told in the story of Adam and Eve, if God would have never said, do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, there would have, there could, they, could have, they could have not sinned because there would have not been a law to violate. And so there can be no sin unless there is a law. And if there's no law regarding a certain practice, then no one can violate uh, that particular law because it doesn't exist. And so the argument is not even not even within Romans 4:15 or 1 John 3:4 because most members of the churches of Christ would concede and say, well, yeah, if there's no law, there's no sin. But this is where they would go on to say there is a law in the New Testament that explicitly condemns instrumental music because of the command to sing. And and now we're going to jump into that unless you want to make some comments. I, I'm just very, very briefly, and without going too far afield, I mean, what you're saying, brother, I see that so clearly now, because that's the same argument that we would have used in the in the one cup group is that in using one cup and Jesus taking the cup as the narrative says, that is the Paul law saying that is yeah, the law absolutely exactly. yep but but then the question is is that the meaning behind the law is that what the Holy Spirit really intended to communicate whenever he inspired those writers to write what they wrote is that really the point that Matthew made whenever Jesus said do this in memory of me that and I got into this in that solo episode so I won't rehash that but when Jesus said do this in memory of me that means you be sure and you be double sure that you're just picking up one cup and we'll see how that argument relates well, to uh we'll see how that argument relates to instrumental music in ephesians 5 19 colossians 3 16 in, in just a moment but yeah. what, what else do you have on that well no i was just going to say because i want to be very careful for our audience to, to realize i am not saying unless the bible says thou shalt not do xyz it's okay and approved by god that is not the argument i'm making and for so many years, that's what I thought the argument was uh, when it when it came to someone who disagreed with me, because they would say, "Well, there's no law against it in the New Testament." I'd say, "Oh, so you're saying unless the you know, well, the Bible doesn't say that you can't have you know X Y Z or you can't do this or you can't do that. So does that mean it's okay? You know, and 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 you would hear kind of these yeah. uh, radical explanations and um are, are these these radical overstatements of because the assumption was oh well if someone says there's no law what they what that was tr i translated that to mean at one point in time well that means that they think you have to have a bible verse that says thou shalt not and then people who disagreed with me at the time thought i had thought i believed you had to have a bible verse saying you can do xyz and I think both sides are missing each other when they argue that way, because ultimately, I think, for lack of better words, both sides 
would, would concede the idea that where there's not law, where there's no law, there's no sin. The question is, is there a law? And if so, how is that law being established? And so we're about to, I'm about to explain in 2012 why I believed that there was a law against instrumental music. And then I'll explain why I don't think that that is a very, uh, very good argument. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see what 2012 Kevin has to say about that. So argument number one has been proven that we must prove all things. We live under the new covenant and we cannot use old covenant practices to justify new covenant practices. And God has always regulated the type of music in worship to him. And God has regulated only vocal music in new covenant worship. And since we prove that, the conclusion therefore must be true, that vocal music is the only type of music authorized under new covenant worship. But folks, we're just getting started tonight. Because now I want us to move to argument number two. We're going to read this and then prove it. When God specifies the type of what he wants in a command, with the absence of any additional authority, it forbids any other type within the command. God has specified vocal music as the type of music under new covenant worship with the absence of any additional authority. Therefore, vocal music is the only type of music authorized under new covenant worship. Now let's prove this. When God specifies the type of what he wants in a command, with the absence of any additional authority, it forbids all other types within the command. Let me give you all an example of this. Before we prove this by the Bible, I just want to show you that this is what we call common sense. We use this in every single facet of our lives. Now, I went to Subway today, and when I go to Subway, and there's a lot of illustrations we could use, but I went to Subway, and let's say you go to Subway. You order a chicken sandwich with lettuce, pickles, and onions. So you tell the woman, and let's say I tell the woman at Subway, I want a sandwich with lettuce, pickles, and onions as my vegetables. Now, she is thinking to herself, you know, I bet Kevin didn't see these tomatoes over here on the left-hand side. I bet he didn't see them. And I know that this sandwich would taste so much better with these tomatoes. I know it would because I've had the same sandwich before. Kevin doesn't know what he's missing out on. So... She's thinking to herself, you know, this Kevin guy, he seems like a really nice guy because, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty nice guy. And she's thinking to herself, I'm going to take these tomatoes and I'm going to put them on this sandwich because it's going to taste better. I'm helping Kevin out. I'm doing him a favor. So she takes those tomatoes and she puts them on that sandwich. And then she starts to think to herself, boy, look at it. Now it even looks pretty. Because you got the color coordination going on too. Now, now you got the red, now you got the green. Boy, it even looks like a better sandwich. And all that for the exact same price. This woman is giving me a better sandwich than what I even ordered. Or at least in her mind, she is. So she takes that sandwich and she wraps it up and she hands it to me. Now I ask you, is that the sandwich that I asked for? Now I don't care if you're Pentecostal. I don't care if you remember the Lord's church. I don't care if you're an atheist. You're going to say, no, Kevin, that's not the sandwich that you asked for. Why? Well, she added tomatoes to your sandwich. Well, I didn't say I didn't want them. Well, yeah, but Kevin, you told her you wanted lettuce, pickles, and onion. Have you ever gone to Subway and had to tell them every bread you didn't want? Have you ever had to do that before? I know you hadn't either. Ever meat you don't want? Ever type of cheese you don't want? Ever type of vegetable you don't want? Have you had to do that before? No, you have not. You see, when we specify the type of what we want, guess what? It excludes all else. Pentecostals do that all the time. Members of the church do it all the time because that's common sense. And by the way, let me make a sub point on this. In the process of that woman making my sandwich, who did she end up making the sandwich for? She made it for herself, didn't she? 
She thought, boy, it's going to taste so much better. Now, wait a minute. Did she have the wrong intent? No, she didn't. Mr. Weatherly is dead wrong tonight. And we're going to prove that. It's going to be very easy to prove. But I believe he's very sincere. We're not doubting anybody's sincerity. I'm not doubting Mr. Weatherly's sincerity more than I'm doubting that woman who made my sandwich wrong. But the point is, is that you're starting to do things for yourself. And that's what people have done for worship. They say, well, it makes me feel so much better. It makes me feel good. I like the way. And we start to take worship. And even though we say we're doing the name of God, what we do is we start to do what we want to do. But when we specified lettuce, pickles, and onions, that excluded tomatoes. Excluded tomatoes. All right, now, there's a lot of illustrations we could use tonight. You're probably thinking of many in your head right now. Say, yeah, it's easy to understand. It is easy to understand. But it's the same way that God operates, too. Let's prove it. When God... You really like Subway, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) This podcast is sponsored to you in part by... Sponsored by Subway. Sponsored by Subway. Eat fresh. Oh, I love this example, man. I, I think it's powerful. I still think it's powerful. <laughs> You're convincing yourself. Oh, no. We're both apostates and need to repent. Oh, man. Oh, mercy sakes alive. Um, no, I, I, you know, the argument of specific, uh, specification, it, this was, to me, this is one of the greatest distractions of the debate because I thought this was, and I'm, and I'm certainly not bragging on myself, but uh, holy cow, that was worded really well. And if I'm, a, and if I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, yeah, that just makes a whole lot of sense. And here's the thing: it does make a whole lot of sense. The problem is connecting that to what we see in the New Testament regarding singing and instrumental music. And this is a this is a, uh, a, a fallacious way of debating that most people cannot spot because what you're doing is you're connecting two thoughts together where one of the thoughts, which is this one right here, the argument of specification, is true, but what it's connected to, which is God specifying singing, as I'm going to explain here in a moment to try to put these two thoughts together in the debate, and I try to seamlessly do it, and it sounds like it just goes hand in hand, but that's the problem is that it doesn't go hand in hand. And so while I agree with this argument of specification that we're, when when someone specifies what they want, of course, you don't have to go to a restaurant and when the server comes over and says, what all would you like to eat? You don't start with the first item and say, let me go down the list and tell you everything I don't want. Um, you don't you don't do that. You just tell the individual what you want. And so what's happening here in this illustration is I'm making a what I even I call this a common sense point. This is something everybody understands. People, people, when they're listening to this, they're able to relate to this and go, well, yeah, of course I don't go to Subway and tell them every kind of bread I don't want or every kind of cheese I don't want. Well, then, then, then why would I expect God to have to tell me everything he doesn't want? Right? I mean, it just, it just sounds like it just should go together. Here's, here's the problem with arguments like this and even illustrations like this. At least among conservative members of the churches of Christ, this is always presented as a negative. What happens is we look at illustrations like this very limited and selectively. So let's take this illustration and and let's change it up a little bit. I had the lady at Subway 
putting something on the sandwich that not only I didn't ask for, but that I didn't like. And that made it sound like a negative, right? Because I'm saying, well, I didn't want tomatoes. I didn't ask for, for tomatoes. And I'm, and, I'm dis, and I'm dissatisfied now because she put tomatoes on my sandwich and I didn't want that. I'm angry. <laughs> I'm mad because she, she, she gave me something I didn't want. But what if, what if the illustration was a little bit different? What if that lady would have made the sandwich exactly the way that I had asked her to make it, but then she threw in a free chocolate chip cookie? Oh, baby, you've got my attention now. Now, now all of a sudden, whoa, now I like Kevin likes him some chocolate chip cookies now. Oh, Lee now, likes him some chocolate chip cookies too, bro. Now, now, what if she would have wrapped it up and she would have taken a chocolate chip cookie, put it in the microwave for 15 seconds and put it in my bag and said, hey, I threw in a chocolate chip cookie. It's on the house. Yeah, you're making me hungry now. Now, I would have welcomed her addition to my order. Even though I did not tell her I wanted the cookie, if out of a desire to show me good service, she thought she would be nice and give me a free cookie, I wouldn't have been upset. I would have thanked her for the cookie. I would have felt good about the cookie, and I would have eaten the cookie with great delight. So illustrations like this have their limitations. And we have to be careful because it can sometimes oversimplify the issue. And I feel like that's what I did because overall, I think the argument that I made about specifying. I think it's a sound argument overall, but it's very limited. It was within a very limited sphere. If you were to tell me, well, I, I went to Sears and I've heard people use this same illustration in the Church of Christ. Well, I went to Sears and I ordered a kitchen, but instead they, you know, they threw in a, or what I say, kitchen, uh, a refrigerator and for my kitchen. And not only did they bring me a refrigerator, but they also brought me a dishwasher and they brought me uh, a washer and dryer. Well, I would be upset if they charged me for it, but if they didn't charge me for it and say, hey, this is just free, I wouldn't say, how dare you take all these appliances back you added to what I ordered, <laughs> right? I mean, I wouldn't yeah. do that. I wouldn't get mad if someone throws in a free dessert at a restaurant. So what makes illustrations like this seem bulletproof is because of how selective and limited in thought they are. But when you begin to make it a little, if, if you broaden the illustration a little bit, if you change a little bit, if you widen it a little bit, all of a sudden, this argument is just not as strong anymore. Well, and I think it just plays into what you pointed out. It's that implication that what is added and the addition, or you may even say the innovation, to borrow that term, is something that is undesirable. Whenever that thing in and of itself is not necessarily undesirable, it does flip the entire argument on its head, but the argument only works if that thing being postulated is in and of itself undesirable. And just like you pointed out, man, it doesn't follow. They, those two things that you try to link together, they really don't link together. And in logical terms, we call that a non sequitur. That's a fallacy that means, you know, what follows actually does not follow. It doesn't fit. Because if God is, in fact, disgusted with instrumental music and God does not want instruments of music used in worship to him, or as I used to put it, and I'd put it in and I'd say it like this with this inflection, instrumental music instrumental music if god does not want that well then we have a big problem because as we pointed out in the last episode and as you've pointed out before and as any student of the old testament can can see 
that's never been something that disgusted God at all. So to use this subway argument, this common sense argument, it really doesn't follow because just as you said, it demands the implication that this is something that's disgusting to God. And if we look at the body of scripture, that's just not a case that can be made. It just does not follow. It's a non sequitur. Yeah, it, it, it assumes it assumes that what is being added is already something that is wrong. Um, and, and that's why I said if you just simply take out the tomato and add a cookie, all of a sudden the, 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 whole, the whole argument of specification goes out the window. Even though the exact same logic is there, it no longer has any effect anymore because now... Uh, I would say, well, in that case, the argument of specification uh, doesn't apply because, sure, she added a cookie to my meal, but I like cookies, and so it's perfectly okay when I specify a sandwich for her to go ahead and add a cookie and a free drink. And, you know, you could say a bag of chips. I mean, you, you could go on and on because these are things that I like. And so this argument already assumes instrumental music is wrong. And it, it assumes God doesn't want it. But let's go ahead and let me finish out the argument because. Um, I, I do mount, I think, a pretty good case in within the legalistic framework, and I want to be very meticulous in how I go about refuting this and why I no longer believe it's the case. So let's let's keep in mind this argument of specification. When we specify what we want, in the absence of any additional authority, it eliminates any other type within that instruction or command. And so I'm about to explain why I believe there is a law in the New Testament and why I believe that law does specify singing to the exclusion of instrumental music. And I'm speaking about 2012 here. And then after I finish up, this is about four minutes left. And then I will go through and explain and just do my best at dismantling this argument of why I changed my mind. Sounds good. All right. 2012, Kevin, what do you have to say about this? When God specifies the type of what he wants in a command with the absence of any additional authority, it forbids all their types within the command. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14, the Hebrews writer makes the argument that under the old covenant, if you wanted to be a priest, you had to be out of the tribe of Levi. And the argument that the Hebrews writer is making is the exact same thing that I just said. Specifying that you had to come out of the tribe of Levi excluded all the other tribes. You don't have to say, thou shalt not come from Judah, thou shalt not come from Benjamin. You don't have to do that. Specifying Levi excluded uh, all the other tribes. When it comes to the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 through 26, where does the Bible say that thou shalt not have tacos on the Lord's Supper table? Thou shalt not add a little easy cheese or even ketchup for that matter. You know, you get a little symbolism going on. Add a little cheese on that unleavened bread and, and we can put uh, the ketchup because that's red. And all of a sudden, well, that, that'd be neat. No, because God has only authorized bread and fruit of the vine. God specified that. Where's the Bible say I shall not have Coca-Cola? Shall not have Sprite? Doesn't say that, but it doesn't have to because when God specifies the type with the absence of any additional authority, it excludes. And you understand that. Everybody understands. So easy a caveman can understand it. So that's what they're saying today. When you come to uh, the mode of having your sins cleansed, Bible says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized or be immersed for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, where does the Bible say thou shalt not sprinkle? Where's the Bible condemn that? Do you know they sprinkled on the Old Testament quite often? Where's the Bible say thou shalt not pour? Not there. I guess the Catholics have been wrong all this time, Mr. Weatherly. No. Mr. Wedley believes in full body immersion. John Carroll believes that. 
I can't speak for the rest of you out there, but I'm assuming most Pentecostals believe that. You know why you believe it? Because God has specified it. That's why you oppose sprinkling. That's why you oppose pouring. Because God has specified immersion. Now, that's easy. That's easy to understand. You say, Kevin, I understand. That's easy. But do you not realize it's by this exact same principle that we only sing vocal? Because that's what God has specified. You see, God has specified vocal music as the type of music under New Covenant worship with the absence of any additional authority. Acts 16.25, sing. Romans 15.9, sing. 1 Corinthians 14.15, sing. Ephesians 5.19, sing. Colossians 3.16, sing. Hebrews 2.12, sing. James chapter 5, verse 13. Now, where is the verse that says play? Where's it at? It's not there. There's not one there. Well, now we can run outside the Bible, perhaps maybe find it there. We can run back to the Old Testament and we'll find it there. But let me remind you what Mr. Weatherly said. I agree 110% that if the New Testament does not teach a particular practice and explicit statement, approved example, or necessary implications, then we cannot appeal to the Old Testament for its justification. That's pretty easy to understand tonight. So all Mr. Wedley has to do tonight is go to the New Testament and show us book, chapter, and verse that authorizes mechanical instruments. That's all you have to do is show us that verse. See, God makes a distinction between singing and playing. Never has He taken that concept and combined them. There has always been a distinction between the two. First Chronicles chapter 15, verse 16, and Psalm chapter 98, verse 5. And so we have argument number two proven. That when God specifies the type of what He wants in a command, with the absence of any additional authority, it forbids any other type within the command. God has specified vocal music as the type of music under New Covenant worship with the absence of any additional authority. Therefore, vocal music is the only type of music authorized under New Covenant worship. All right, so that pretty much wrapped up the, the first speech there. Uh, are you convinced yet, Lee? I'm convinced, man. We just need to stand and sing. Not play, but stand and sing, and I'll come forward and make a confession, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll straighten up and fly so, right now. So I'm not going to spend too much time, because um, I know we're, I think we're already going uh, pretty long on this episode, too, but this is really the crux of the argument, uh, and that is, within a command, example, and necessary inference hermeneutic, everything boils down to exactly what I just said, and that is that seeing excludes playing. That, that's what you have to believe. So if you believe that instrumental music in worship under the new covenant is sinful, it's because you believe that a law is being violated and that law is that God has told us to sing and seeing excludes playing. That That's the argument. I mean, I spent yeah. the whole debate not saying that, but building up to that point. And then I spent the last three minutes making my actual argument because everything hinges on that one point. Everything does. Everything hinges. If you believe in the command example of necessary inference hermeneutic, everything boils down to the argument that seeing excludes play. And when when dealing with this argument, I just could not believe I had missed this 
in my studies. And a lot of that had to do with my own bias, uh, my, I would dare say my unconscious bias, which we're going to have someone to come on our show who is a, a medical doctor who's trained in that to talk about our unconscious bias. But I, I can't believe that I didn't realize how feeble this argument really is, because that's what it comes down to. And so when dealing with the subject of instrumental music and worship, many arguments are centered around the Greek word solo. This is something, if you're a Church of Christ member, you probably don't know any Greek except the word solo. <laughs> and th there, there are five occurrences, only five, only five occurrences of the Greek word solo in the New Testament. It's Ephesians 5.19, which is every Church of Christ conservative member's you know, favorite verse um, on singing. 1 Corinthians 14.15, the word solo is there twice. James 5.13, the word solo or its equivalent is there. And then also Romans 15.9. Many articles and studies, I mean many, have been done by members of the Churches of Christ if, if, on, this, on this Greek word solo. I mean, you don't have to take my word for it. Just Google search Church of Christ and solo, P-S-A-L-L-O, and all sorts of stuff's going to pop up. You're going to find that the conclusion on these articles are all basically the same. And that conclusion is that the word solo, by the time of the New Testament, predominantly meant to sink. And Lee, what I'm about to say, I don't even know if, if you and I have discussed this much, but that was my conclusion in 2012. And after a personal and extreme in-depth study after, guess what I concluded? I would <laughs> say that, yeah, it predominantly meant to sing, but well, there's probably I, more to it than that. Well, I concluded the exact same thing. I concluded that the yeah. word solo in the first century predominantly meant to sing. So I didn't have any new findings in my studies, in my research. I didn't come up with any new, you know, revelation of, oh, wow, the word solo actually meant to play by the, you know, still meant to play by the first century. I don't believe that. I think that when we see the word solo in the New Testament, it predominantly, and not just in the New Testament, but within that time period, it predominantly was a, a word signifying vocal praise. Now, if you're listening, you're probably like, okay, where in the world is Kevin going with this then? I mean, does that not prove the point that he made in 2012? Yeah, I'm kind of wondering that too. So I'm here <laughs> to hear what you have to say about this. Yeah, okay. And so the answer is no, and here's why. The true issue, and this is this is it, man. This is it. This is the this is the thing that made me change my whole mind right here. Okay. The true issue has nothing to do with whether or not the word solo means sink. Anyone can appeal to lexicons and dictionaries and show that by the first century, the word solo means to sing. That's, that's, you're, nobody's going to disprove that. That's not the issue. The issue is whether or not the word solo is a word strong enough that prohibits instrumental music and is mutually exclusive of instrumental music. Because if we're saying that the word sing is a law and that law is so powerful that we cannot play, that means that the command to sing must exclude instrumental music. It's not enough to say that the word solo means sing. You, we have to go to the extent to say the word solo means sing to the exclusion of instrumental music in order to get the law of specification. So the question boils down not to does solo mean sing. 
It's does solo mean sing to the exclusion of instrumental music or where it prohibits uh, instrumental music? Now, here's the problem that many members of the Church of Christ have. They have added an important word to the definition. They have added the word only. Even in my debate, I had to see I had to say sing to the exclusion of instrumental music. Do you know why I had to say that? Because the word sing does not imply that. That's why yeah. we have to add these words. They have changed the definition, and I have changed the definition of solo to mean from sing to sing only. And so in doing they have added, and I had added, to God's word. So the word solo is not an exclusive word, and the word solo does not mean to sing only. Now, for those maybe still not exactly sure what I'm saying, let me give a little more explanation to this. The word solo cannot be used to require instrumental music, but it is never used in, its, in any context to restrict its use. In fact, the Greek word solo has never restricted the use of instrumental praise in any context. So parallels made to baptism being immersion and not sprinkling, all of those are inapplicable here because singing is never mutually exclusive with playing and oftentimes it was inclusive of it. So for example, in the Greek Old Testament, which is also known as the Septuagint, the word solo is used as a word which can include instruments. And um, I went through and studied every single occurrence of the word solo in the Septuagint. And oftentimes the word solo is used within the context of instrumental music. It doesn't demand instrumental music, but it is oftentimes inclusive of instrumental music, but it is never exclusive of instrumental music. And we see this in 1 Samuel 16, 16, 1 Samuel 16, 17, 1 Samuel 16, 18, 1 Samuel 16, 23, 1 Samuel 18, 10, 1 Samuel 19, 9, 2 Kings 3, 15, Psalm 33, 3, etc., etc., etc. So it's important to note while the word solo can include instruments, it doesn't necessitate them, nor does it forbid them. And once again, this can be seen by the way it's translated in the Greek Old Testament. Now, Furthermore, examples of those living close to the time of Jesus, such as Josephus and other Hellenistic Jews, can be cited to show that they still sometimes did use the word solo in such a way as to be able to include instrumental music. So it wasn't out of the ordinary for people to still use the word solo in association with instrumental music. In uh, Danny Corbett's book, for example, Missing More Than Music, on page 28, he talks about uh, Ferguson. Ferguson's a Church of Christ scholar, and he says, although he strongly supports only a cappella singing, Ferguson himself acknowledges that still in the first century, Hellenistic Greek-speaking Jews writing for Gentile audience kept within the classical instrumental meaning of solo. And he gives the famous Josephus as an example of a Jew writing to the common Greek of the day who always used solo for instrumental music. What that means is that while the word solo was used primarily as a term talking about vocal praise, it was still used in some context to signify instrumental praise, but it was never, and this is the point, it was never, ever, 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 there is not one occurrence of the word solo being used to exclude instrumental music. Now, why is that important? Because regardless, the debate on whether or not solo meant to play an instrument is completely frivolous for our, for our calls here, because it doesn't matter. If solo is not a word that prohibits instrumental music intrinsically, 
then it cannot be used in attempts to condemn its use. Solo is not a word that ever prohibits instrumental music. Therefore, it cannot be used in attempts to condemn its use. So consider this. If Paul wanted to prohibit mechanical instruments for worship, and he was giving some sort of law that specified singing to the exclusion of mechanical instruments, why in the world would he do so by using a word that up until that point had never prohibited its use and was in fact a word that oftentimes was inclusive of instrumental music during that time? And in no other context had that word ever been used to exclude instrumental music. But yet we're going to turn around and say that now, just in the five times Paul uses it for some reason, we're going to give some sort of mystical special meeting and say, but in these contexts, the word solo was meant to exclude instrumental music when it never did before. That is a special pleading of a different sort that, that, that no one, I believe, can honestly argue when they study all of the occurrences of the word solo. Well, it's it's a non sequitur and special pleading having a baby. I mean, that's essentially what it is because the solo argument it is a non sequitur. It does not follow, and to demand that it does exclude playing an instrument to the emphasis of singing within the New Testament era, that is special pleading, like you said, on a whole other level. And and we intrinsically understand this, you know, to borrow from twenty twelve Kevin's statement of of common sense. You know, if I sit down with my buddy and, you know, I've got my drumsticks in my hand or maybe I've got my my congos or, or another percussion instrument and he has his guitar and someone walks into the room and says, oh, what are y'all doing? Oh, we're just messing around, just fooling around. Oh, well, sing me a song. Okay, well, then are we just going to start singing at this point? And we're not going to play at all. I mean, we understand that even in that sense, if we borrow it from common sense. But, you know, solo and a study, a, a cursory study, when I really didn't understand context and really didn't understand ancient languages, and I still really don't understand ancient languages. I just read after people that do. The solo argument, as it's presented by so many within the churches of Christ, was one of the big issues that led me to converting to the churches of Christ. It was reading and studying what these people had written about solo and how it was exclusive against instruments that to me made a lot of sense in that point in my life. It, it made perfect sense, but dude, what you just said that you really hit the nail on the head, the word only is added either explicitly in these discussions where it means to sing only, or it's at the very least strongly implied. Well, yeah. And, and even today, and this is something I look back on and I'm just, I'm dumbfounded at that I spent nine months in solid preparation for a debate and this never dawned on me. <laughs> like, yeah, like I like my whole argument says sing excludes play. But when I define sing, I have to I have to give qualifiers because we understand the word sing doesn't exclude play. I, even in the debate, I had to say, I believe that the use of instrumental music in addition to singing is 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 unauthorized or I believe that Christians are only authorized to sing without the use of instrumental music. Well, if the word sing meant to sing without instrumental music, we wouldn't have to say to sing without instrumental music because it would be intrinsically implied. And that's the argument we're making. And of course people would say, "Well, Kevin, sing is an English word. I understand that." But here's the other kicker. 
I was studying this because I went really deep because, you know, you don't you don't have a debate in front of 1,500 to 2,000 people, affirm a position, and then three years change your mind and and without doing research to make sure that it's worth changing your mind. <laughs> I mean, you, you, yeah. you make sure that you, if you're going to change your mind on something that you spent this much time studying to begin with, you know, you better make sure that you study. So I went and I said, okay, I'm going to talk to all these these Greek and Hebrew and language scholars, and I'm going to ask them as well to make sure that I'm just not missing something here. But, you know, is there any language? Well, first of all, is there any time in Greek and Hebrew where any of the words sing, solo specifically, or its equivalents in the in the Septuagint or any of these words, is there any time when, when words, the word sing is mutually exclusive of playing? And the answer was no. There's not a single time. When the word sing or solo in and of itself is mutually exclusive and, and it excludes playing. And so then I started looking at other languages. Well, is there any language where the word where, where someone hears the word sing and they automatically think that that means they cannot play an instrument, a, 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 a instrument of music? Because that's our argument. That's the Church yeah. of Christ argument. The Church of Christ argument is that because the Bible says sing, that intrinsically means do not play. That's exactly what the argument is. And see, I can get passionate in 2021 too. So so, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. And this this is what, when when I'm talking to people, they tend to miss this. I don't know if they do it on purpose, but they tend to miss what I'm saying because they go, well, yeah, Kevin, but there's still no authority. And I said, but your whole argument on authority is that seeing excludes play, right? Yeah. And, and, and and even Dr. Kevin Moore, when he went in this, we got in this little tit and tat with each other, a back and forth. And he said, well, Kevin says that the word solo doesn't exclude instrumental music. And Kevin, Dr. Kevin Moore says, and I agree, but there's still no authority. You can't agree while arguing there's no authority because the only way you can argue there's no authority is by saying sing excludes play. If sing doesn't exclude play, then there's no there's no argument. The argument well, has been abandoned. Well, dude, it just it just further demonstrates how so many of these laws that we make and so many of these lines that we draw on the sand that God never drew and these walls of partition that we build that God never built, it's all so arbitrary. And it's all so based in tradition that we inherit our traditions and then we want to justify these traditions. And whenever we say, well, there's no authority for it. And whenever we understand that solo in and of itself is not a mutually exclusive word that separates singing from playing and that it can often include playing it. And at the very least, it does not reject playing an instrument. And we say, well, there's still no authority for it. Well, okay, where's our authority for spending the Lord's money? And I say that in quotes with using the Lord's money to buy a church building or to buy a piece of real estate and to use that money to develop that real estate so that we can build a building and then to use that money so that the building can be built. And then we use that money to maintain the building and we use that money to, to pay for the insurance on that building. And then we use that money to put carpet in the building and we use that money to, to put basketball goals in the building, which there are people that would argue against that anyway. But very few people say, oh, well, no, no, we can have a building because we need a place to meet. Well, where's your authority to buy a building with that money? Where's the authority to use the resources of the church to allow the church as a corporate entity, as a 501c3? Where's the authority to allow the church to organize as a 501c3? In the first century, they met in people's homes. Where's the authority to buy a building? We have authority to meet in homes. We don't have authority to, to buy a building or to do that. 
Where's the authority for us to have songbooks? Where's the authority to have um, a PowerPoint presentation? Where's the authority to have a, a projector in a screen to shoot those things on? Where's the authority to have a baptistry? We see in scripture, people are baptized in rivers and in creeks and, and in lakes and in seas. We don't have any authority. The word baptistry isn't even in the Bible. We don't have authority for that. Well, but and those it, are expedients, you yeah, see. Yeah, I was going to say. expedients. We're going to create a whole new class of ideas. And now you're getting me fired up. We're going to create <laughs> a whole new class of ideas and a whole new system and a whole new subset of systems and a whole new um, types of, of logical in, intentionality in order to justify the practices that we're okay with. Dude, it's the chocolate chip cookie all over again. These are the chocolate chip cookies that we like, but that piano or that guitar or that banjo or those drums, those are the tomatoes on that sandwich that, that God never asked for. Those are expediencies, but these aren't. And then it gets into the question of how are we making the determination of what's an expedient and what's an addition? And we go through all these hermeneutical gymnastics and all these mental gymnastics to justify our practices and to justify our traditions while we condemn the things that run counter to them. It's arbitrary and it, oh yeah, it got me well, fired up. Well, and, and I would even go, though, a step further and say I would have no problem with, well, I, I might now because I look at the Bible quite differently, but but I would have no problem if, for example, the word solo was some sort of exclusive word, mutually exclusive word in that. Whenever that word was stated, everyone knew that that meant to sing and always excluded instrumental music. I, I mean, that's I, not the case. No, no, that's absolutely not. The, case not. Of that the, word. the opposite is true, and 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 so this is the question that I asked myself. I am a first century Jew who has learned about Jesus, who has learned about Christianity, and who has decided to become a disciple of Jesus. And so I am a Christian at the 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 a congregation of Christians worshiping in Ephesus. And just like 85 to 95% of all people at that time, I was Ill, I'm, I'm illiterate. So I am hearing this letter being read because I can't read. And I hear that Paul says that we are to sing. And I hear that, that we're to solo to one another. And what a Church of Christ member is going to say is, oh, well, whenever someone reads the New Testament, all they can find is the word sing. And so attached to that is the condemnation to play. But my question is, is that what a first century Jew or even a Gentile convert to Christianity would have thought? Would they have seen the word solo and immediately thought, oh, this means to sing without the accompanying of a mechanical instrument? Yeah, is, would they have made that connection? Yeah, would they have made that connection? And if so, Based upon what evidence, and by the way, I, 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 honest to goodness, I'm not trying to be like myself in 2012, but I don't know of any. I don't know of a single time where someone could point to Solo and say, here is an example that would make it clear that whenever the word Solo is used, everyone would attach the meaning that this means to sing without the use of instrumental music. There's not any evidence, folks, and I, and I have... Look, I have de literally debated this on both sides of the issue, and, and there's not any. 
And that's what this argument demands. This argument demands, it necessitates that the word solo is a mutually exclusive word to play, or at least by the first century. Now, this is where sometimes people say, well, by the first century, it became to, it, it became uh, seen without the accompany of a mechanical instrument. And, and that's sometimes where there's a little uh, wrinkle in the argument is they'll say, well, it didn't mean that. But by the time the first century rolled around, that's what it meant. And, and, and there's even a couple of lexicons that people sometimes point to and say, well, see, look, th this just says to sing and, and even without instrumental music. But here is why that argument does not hold up. What version of the Bible the, or the, the Hebrew Bible did people use at, in the first century? Especially the Hellenistic Jews, the, the, the Greeks, you know, what, or what, what version of the Bible? It was the Septuagint. Well, the Septuagint translates these, the, the word solo is here in all of these contexts with instrumental music. And as I said before, while I believe the word solo predominantly was vocal praise by the first century, it was not exclusively vocal praise because we still see Josephus and others using the classical meaning of, of uh, playing an instrument. And so while I don't believe that it necessitates playing an instrumental music, there would be no reason to believe that it excludes playing an instrumental music. And if so, my question would be, give, give me one. And I think you would have to do more, but give me one example. It's a clear cut where solo is disassociating itself with instrumental music to the point of where it excludes playing. And it just doesn't exist, especially when you combine the fact that they would have used the Septuagint. Jesus used the Septuagint. Paul used the Septuagint. That's what they would have used. So when they saw the word solo, that was always associated with instrumental context. It was never associated with context that would forbid instrumental music. So I know I'm repeating myself, but this is an argument that so many people just simply pass over, or I think they purposefully misunderstand because of the power within the argument itself. Or they just completely miss it because they've never heard it within those terms before. Because whenever you hear this discussion about solo, it's just like you said, it's it's in terms of sing only or predominantly to sing. And then that's implied to mean sing only. And so you really never hear the other side of it. You never hear about how it's not an exclusive word. It's not an exclusionary word. And dude, the point you just made about that perlocutory context of, of what a first century listener would have heard, how would they have understand it? That's something that we miss so often because we are so conditioned to look at these things through our own 21st century eyes that have been tainted with that post-enlightenment perspective. And as we move on, you know, through time into modernism and now into postmodernism and these different methods of understanding and ascertaining truth and moving through our lives and understanding what truth is and how truth works. I mean, that colors how we view the scriptures, and it especially does in terms of worship that's acceptable to God, because all of us want to be acceptable to God. We all want to give God that which he desires, but what we miss so much in this, this talk on instrumental music perfectly illustrates this. What we miss is that so often we view what God wants as what rituals does God want us to observe unto him when what God wants is you. Yeah. What God wants is your heart. What God wants is what we alluded to in, in the previous episode. 
God wants us to present our bodies a living sacrifice unto him. God wants your heart. God wants your mind. God wants you and your fidelity unto him. And that's expressed by loving him and loving your neighbor, your fellow image bearer who bears God's image in this life. Well, that's and this, what God wants. That summarizes all of it. And, and, and this whole argumentation that I'm using is still within a legalistic framework, by the way. I mean, I don't yeah. even, this framework I'm, I'm, I am literally being restrained by is one I don't even think is valid because I would now argue that we don't go to the New Testament as a Christian constitution to figure out some sort of hidden, mysterious, deep-rooted laws that we have to do all sorts of hermeneutical gymnastics to try to string together and figure out what we're supposed to do and not supposed to do in worship. I, because I don't even I don't even believe the framework I'm using right now. But the point I'm trying to demonstrate is even within this framework, even within this legalistic command example necessary in for framework. Mechanical instruments are authorized. So even even if you believe, you know, and that that's what boggles my mind is I was I was having this conversation with a friend of mine back in 2015 when I still was operating under the command example necessary inference. I said, well, you know, where is the law in, in the New Testament that you know? And I and I you know, he said, well, the Bible doesn't have to say thou shalt not. I said, well, of course it doesn't have to say thou shalt not. I said that's not my point. My point is. We would always say that sing excludes play. I said, but on what on what basis does sing exclude play? Specifically, solo. Where where does where do these words ever exclude playing mechanical instruments? As, and much not only exclude but prohibit to the point of condemning. Because I mean, it's it's even one thing to say that you know it, it's excluded versus that it, it's mutually exclusive. It, it means that you cannot play an instrument. That just doesn't exist. It's not there. I said, so what law is there? And that's when he just continued to fall back on, well, there's just no authority. There's no authority. When someone does that, that shows me they don't even understand their own hermeneutic. And 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 I'm not saying this. I'm please do not take if you're listening, do not take this to be derogatory. So many people who listened to my debate back in 2012 told me that they did not believe instrumental music was sinful until they heard me debate the issue, because they said they really didn't understand why they thought it was wrong. And, and, you know, and it, it, it breaks my heart to know that I'm the reason why now there are, there are more people who are legalistic and who believe in this, this, this horrible way of understanding scripture, um, because, because I presented within this framework, this command example, necessary inference, but even within that, it just doesn't work because my whole argument was predicated on the idea that seeing is it, first of all a law, a constitutional law that when Paul told the Christians in Ephesus to sing and make melody, that's constitutional law. And then second of all, that the word sing, intrinsic in sing, condemned instrumental music. Both of those are completely false, but only that second one is all that's needed to show that that argument is just not valid. And so in the next episode, we'll probably need to wrap this one up because in the next episode, I want to get into some more arguments about plucking the strings of the heart and the early church history and things of that nature that I think is going to be extremely interesting to people. Absolutely. This is, man, this has been a good discussion. I mean, we both got fired up and that doesn't happen very often. I mean, I'll get fired <laughs> up sometimes, you'll get fired up sometimes, but all in all, 
I, I think we did a really good job of, of unraveling and unwrapping that package that you had presented this argument in so many years ago, nine years ago, almost a decade ago, brother. That's wild. Time yeah, it's flies. crazy, man. It is. And it just goes to show. And I, and I still look just as young. It's, it blows my mind. You, you really do. You've aged, you've <laughs> aged very gracefully. You know, I feel like I'm aging like a banana right now. Oh, it's, it's just rough. I look good. I look good. look good. And then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, you're approaching. Well, I didn't say I look good. I just said, I, you know, still look about the same age. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's those Alabama jeans. Well, I, like I said, this was a great discussion. I'm really looking forward to um, getting into the next discussion. It's going to be a real goodie. We're going to be buttoning up some of the things that we didn't address in uh, the last episode or in this one. So stay tuned if you want to hear more things discussed. If you have another point that you want to make or something that we haven't discussed or something that maybe we haven't considered or heard before relating to this topic, we would love to hear from you, even if you disagree with us. And that's one thing that that I want to put out there is Kevin and I love hearing from you guys, even if you disagree with us, even if you think we're off base about something, we would love to hear why you think that's the case and what your rationale is for it. So reach out to us. We love hearing from our listeners. We love hearing from the people that, that we have been able to, to encourage through this work. And it's an encouragement to us to hear from you all, even if we find ourselves on different sides of an issue. So reach out to us, give us an email, drop us a line, follow us on Facebook, uh, stay tuned for more episodes. We appreciate all of you. Give us that five-star review, tell us or tell your friends about us. And we look forward to hearing from you all and being with you once again.